This is a talk by Fred Chambers titled Self Surrender and the F Words, recorded June 14, 2009, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So I've entitled this talk this morning Self Surrender and the F Words. <laughs> So is surrendering the self foolish, frightening, or fun? Let's see if we can discover some answers here. So we begin with the word foolish. When we first hear mystical teachings, that the egoic self doesn't exist, or about the empty nature of everything that we believe has made up ourselves, it seems utterly foolish to the mind. It seems outlandish and absurd that anyone would say something like this, let alone expect us to believe it. Yet the mystics of all the great traditions make this claim. Here is what Hindu saint Ramana Maharshi says. Who are you? Are you this body? If so, why are you not aware of the crawling of a serpent on this body when you are in deep sleep? So then, can you be this body? No, certainly not. You must be other than this body. And Sufi master Ibn al-Arabi explains, Know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself an imagination. The Sufis are the mystics of Islam. And here's a Jewish adage. Whoever is full of himself has no room for God. So the implication is that if you get rid of the self, then God or pure consciousness will appear. And finally, here is Buddhist master Wang Po. Give up those erroneous thoughts leading to false distinctions. There is no self, no other. There is no wrong desire, no anger, no hatred, no love, no victory, no failure. Only renounce the error of intellectual or conceptual thought processes, and your nature will exhibit its pristine purity. So I remember the first time, one of the first times I heard these teachings, it really didn't make any sense in it. Joel was talking about how everything we believe to be ourselves is always arising and passing away, so it really couldn't be what we truly are. Now, it makes sense that things like emotions and bodily sensations arise and dissolve, but it seemed crazy to think that the self didn't exist. I remember thinking that the self must be some sort of thing that ties all these things together as they arise and disappear. I didn't know what that might be, but just didn't seem to make any sense that the self doesn't exist. And actually, looking back, moments like those are actually moments to realize consciousness itself, because there's a moment of don't know mind. It's like you're presented with these teachings and you just don't get it. And so not being able to find anything or to understand anything, there it is, right in that moment. Remember what Wang Po just said. Renounce the error of intellectual or conceptual thought processes and your nature will exhibit its pristine purity. So if the mind doesn't know anything, there's a moment where it stops. And if the mind is stopped, it can't make an error. It can't make that error that it's always making. So right there, the pristine purity arises. But we normally skip right over that moment. So spiritual teachings continue. Try to discover that moment again and again. But from what perspective does this idea of no self seem foolish or absurd? Well, it's from the perspective of the thinking mind. Now, can the thinking mind ever prove the existence of things? 
We can say that all thoughts are true. Well, what about the idea that thoughts are false? Is that then true or false? Or we can say that all thoughts are false. But then is that statement true or false? So thoughts can be useful or not. They can be beautiful or not. They can be foolish or playful, but they aren't true or false. A thought is just a thought, nothing more and nothing less. So where does that leave us? If we're relying on the thinking mind to tell us who we truly are, it can't do it. And if we ask it to, it will try with all its might, but it's an impossible task. So we're left with the seeming absurdity that the mystics claim we are not what we have always believed we are. But if we're willing to ponder mystical teachings, then the things the mystics say start to make sense. That brings us to another F word. This time it's faith. Now this isn't the faith in the sense of unquestioning belief in mystical teachings. Rather, it is having enough confidence that the teachings might be accurate so that you're willing to give them a try. This is much like going to a university and taking a class in organic chemistry. The instructor writes all these strange formulas on the board, and there are numerous weird-sounding names and words you've never heard before. You have to have some faith that the teacher knows what they're talking about. And if you listen to what they say and do the homework, then by the end of the class, you will know what the instructor knows. Now this then becomes an active faith, because you do the assigned work and begin to have insight into how these formulas work. And your faith is replaced by knowledge. I must say, when I took organic chemistry in college, it didn't seem like my faith would be replaced by much knowledge. <laughs> I never did get a handle on those formulas too well. But I had a friend who had, who had the same problem with organic chemistry, and uh, he decided to take it a second time. And so the second time, too, he started having all these aha experiences. Like he finally got it. He got what those formulas were and what, what the instructor was trying to pass on. And so his, his faith was replaced by knowledge. And that's also a good lesson in perseverance. He was willing to keep working at it until he knew what organic chemistry was all about. So, how do we become willing to give mystical teachings and practices a try? Uh, another F word, failure. Failure in worldly pursuits is one way. If we've been trying to find happiness through worldly pursuits, then we'll often see in our own lives that it doesn't seem possible to find it. I tried a variety of different careers in my life to try to find something that would be fulfilling for me. I tried everything from farming to psychology to green businesses such as recycling, and finally moving to this eco-friendly, intentional community <coughs> in Oregon here. And all of these jobs are just fine in their own right, but none of them really made me more happy than, than anything else. And nowhere did I find any open answers or see anyone that could point me in the direction of abiding happiness. So since I had failed at everything I tried, I was unwittingly open to whatever presented itself. I stumbled upon meditation and spiritual practices, and then I started to be, to be struck by the fact that the mystics claimed to have found an ultimate reality and abiding happiness, and they claimed it is available to all of us. Or maybe you do find a world of success. Your career takes off, you're making a lot of money, you can afford to buy whatever material goods you want, and they do bring some temporary happiness. 
But if you're paying attention, you'll find that the happiness is always receding. And you have to keep acquiring new things in order to keep that happiness going. Now here's what the Buddha says. But there is that which does not belong to materialism and which is not reached by the knowledge of the philosophers who cling to false discriminations and erroneous reasonings because they fail to see that fundamentally there is no reality in external objects. And Long Kempa agrees. Although not really existing, things still appear. From their own side, however, such things are void by nature. These void appearances do not actually exist. They have no foundation, no support, no beginning, no middle or end. So if things are impermanent, they can really never bring us lasting happiness. The more we cling to them, their very nature, but they disappear and impermanent, so we can never find any permanent happiness in things. And another failure, the failure of the body to maintain health can be a wake-up call for some people. If you do have a serious illness, you're confronted with the fact that the body is going to die. Now you can become bitter and cynical about this, or you can uh, start to ponder this, and maybe it'll lead to an inquiry into whether or not you really are the body. Then if you hear the same teaching by Ramana Maharshi, when he says, who are you? Are you this body? If so, why are you not aware of the crawling of a serpent on this body when you are in deep sleep? So then, can you be this body? No, certainly not. You must be other than this body. So you start to pay attention to things like that and become more curious. You start to wonder if that is true or not. I mean, it can still sound foolish. What do I, well, what do I have to lose to really investigate this a little further? Now, another motivation try out spiritual practices, can be the so-called negative emotions that you have and really have a failure to control these emotions. It could be anger or disgust that keeps grabbing a hold of you, or deep sadness and grief that keeps returning and causing you suffering. Then when you hear the teaching that things don't exist, such as the Taoist sage Chang Su, he says, all that have faces, forms, voices, colors, these are all mere things. But that which creates things has no form, and it rests where there is no change. If a man could get hold of this and exhaust it fully, then how can things stand in his way? So you start to think it might be worth exploring this a little more fully, to see if it's possible to rid of these emotions that you dislike. So, through recognition of our failures, we can summon up enough faith to start to explore the spiritual path. And then we begin to learn more about the mystics and do spiritual practices. Then we can start to have glimpses of this no-self. I remember a few months after I started on the spiritual path, I had read about walking meditation in a book, camping over on the Oregon coast, and I thought, well, I'll just give this a try. So I started walking, and I put my attention on my feet, and just started walking, and all of a sudden it felt like I was floating. It was kind of startling. And so I stopped and started thinking, well, what was that? It wasn't an unpleasant experience, but it was different from my normal experience. So a little bit, a little bit of fear arose. And so I went back to what was familiar, which was the thinking mind. So 
So there are the next two F words, fear and familiar. So we have attraction to this place of selflessness, but once we get a taste of it, fear often arises because it is a space that is unknown to us. So we retreat to the familiar place of the egoic mind. Here's another quote from Wang Po, which speaks directly to this. It, the absolute consciousness, is neither subject nor object, has no specific location, is formless, and cannot vanish. Those who hasten towards it dare not enter, fearing to hurtle down through the void with nothing to cling to or to stay their fall. So they look to the brink and retreat. Now this fear usually has a quality of awe about it. It's actually a mixed feeling of reverence, fear, and wonder. So it's not really a feeling of feeling of terror, but it's a space that seems full of power. And but because we are unfamiliar with it, it seems a little bit scary. Actually there's nothing wrong when fear arises. It's a pretty normal reaction to these teachings. Because these teachings are really pretty radical. And they're radical in two ways. Now, the word radical is derived from the Latin word radix, which means a root, which means of or from the root or fundamental. And mystical teachings are fundamental teachings that arise from this primal source, the root of the root, as Dr. Wolf called it. And these teachings also point the way back or give instructions regarding discovering this primal consciousness. And this involves an extreme change in how we have normally viewed ourselves in the world, which is the other definition of radical. Extreme change. So this journey to the unknown usually arouses fear. But if we don't turn away from this fear, it can actually be a valuable asset for us. It gives us a clarity of mind and focuses our intention on whatever is in awareness. An example is, I was driving on a winding, narrow lane road a couple of years ago. There's a steep hill, a mountain almost, on one side and the bank on the other. There wasn't much room on either side. And I went into this S-curve, and came out of this first curve. This other car was coming directly toward me. It drifted over, coming out of his curve. He was like three-fourths of the way into my lane. So the adrenaline kicked in. There's just this clarity of mind about what I need to do, which is to slow the car down and to move as far as over as I could, which wasn't too far. But fortunately, this other driver was able to gain control of his car and, and pull his car back over far enough into his lane to miss me, and it went by. Now, as soon as the car went by, the mind kicked in and went, that's son of a bitch. Why is he going so fast? He could have killed me. Now, the longer you focus on these stories, you can actually work up a lot of fear and anxiety about this story about how you were almost killed. <clears throat> but actually, all of that is added on after the experience, after the situation has passed. In the moment, there was just extreme clarity and focused attention. Focused attention on what needed to be done. There wasn't even a sense of I that was doing anything, nor was there any worry about what was going to happen. It was just the mind was clear and knew what it needed to do. And whatever happened, happened. Has anyone else experienced something like this? These moments of... Yeah, a lot of people. Anybody want to share any of them? Good one come to mind. I was in Colorado and we were on 
on this sort of not mountaintop, but near a mountaintop, and there was this huge bowl of snow. And we were, my friend and I were considering like sliding down it. But it was really steep at the top. It's like, I don't know if we're gonna fall or not. And, uh, as I was like getting close to the edge, like think, well, should we go or not? And bows on my feet just gave way, and I just went, you know? I didn't really choose to do it, but there I was. And that was incredibly clear. <laughs> really fun, actually. I mean, it was incredibly liberating. All that fear just disappeared when I found that I was okay. So it was like both I wasn't there and the fear went away. It was like it's like one of those peak experiences. Yeah, good. Yeah, Pat. I was going to say my husband uh, had beginning, um, which got worse, macular degeneration, and we were he was still driving, able to drive, because as you know, central vision is dim or gone, and you have a, a lateral vision, a peripheral. And he was coming up on a car, just kind of going like regular 65 miles an hour on a freeway, and I just wasn't thinking, and he was straight ahead of him, and he's driving, and like, uh, well, he's going to slow down, and he did, and finally I said, Wally, move over, you're going to hit this guy, so he just kind of jerked it over, but, you know, he wasn't, he was directly in front of him, and he just, the guy had kind of slowed down, well, it's, but I was still had this fear of the scare, even though I knew it was over, and I was relaxing, getting back to normal, but... Um, I had the clarity at that moment, I remember that, you know, of being able to tell him in time so that we didn't crash in the back of his car. But uh, I still was upset and, and the, the physical thing was definitely still there, the relief and the still some of the fear, but that's physical. Yeah, but actually, well my experience is that it's still clarity. I mean, it doesn't have to be... Well, it was pretty clear, but it was still fearful. I was still fearful, and I, yeah, it was clear that I was okay, and that was a big relief, and he got over in time, and we went on our way, but it took a while for me to get back to a normal, comfortable, relaxing passenger riding thing again. But I always find that actually it's the stories that really make create that fear. That even if there's adrenaline there, it doesn't have to be experienced as fear. It can just be experienced as the clarity of the moment. Marlene? I had a, a, similar, a similar experience to you, only I actually did roll off. And the clarity was there constantly. And uh, even when they came for me, and we're coming with the stretcher, I, you know, I wiggled my hands and my feet to make sure that, you know, I wasn't paralyzed. And uh, it was, the clarity just stayed for a very, very long time. Yeah. Is it possible if the adrenaline and the clarity are two different kinds of experiences that they're not necessarily the same thing? And for me, they always kind of seem similar. I mean, they seem to be connected. Well, when I have an experience like that, I get almost numb with the physical sensation of having come very close to danger of some sort. There's a clarity in the moment, too, but I'm not sure that they're the same for me. Hmm. Yeah, well, that'd be something to investigate. Just to pay attention to. See if there is a difference in your life. You talk about adrenaline rush, I mean, that's... Almost theoretical. I mean, what is adrenaline rush? And it's, it's just kind of a yeah, it's just kind of an energy rushing into the body. And I wonder if a realized person having the same experience would have an adrenaline rush, since they aren't identified with a sense of self and don't feel like there's a threat to self. Yeah, I mean, it's just a it's this habitual condition. I mean, it's a physical reaction. It just comes, 
whether there's a self or not, it doesn't matter. That's you can let go of those stories. You realize that there's you know it's just there's nothing to hang on to. The adrenaline rush still comes there, and then there's a, that clarity, and then when the stories start to kick in, you think, oh, that's just all I'll just added on. That's what we do all the time. We're always adding things on to, to situations. If you're identifying the clarity as a moment of realization, then you're suggesting that if we give someone a shot of adrenaline, that they can have that experience. They can have a moment of clarity, I would assume. Whether they recognize that as enlightenment or not, who knows? But is that also a survival instinct, uh, the clarity, because it's either fight or flight? I mean, it's part of the whole our physical makeup, too. We, it's the survival that we are in danger, and that clarity is there to kind of help yeah. us deal with it. Yeah. But you're right, there are stories attached to it. You may not have proper clarity to survive very well. Yeah. Matt. Yeah. Um, Douglas said, uh, sometimes, though, when we're in the meditation, the teacher will yell, like, what do you call that? Hut! You know, when you're meditating, it, it freaks you out. <laughs> and, it, and it does give you that second of clarity. And then again, it's the opportunity, you know, it's kind of like the Zen master hitting you or something. But my experience is that it's a little bit different than an accident, but actually kind of putting yourself into a situation, a couple of things. When I used to fight in tournaments, martial arts tournaments, you know, you're pretty scared before you go in. You work with it to try to let go of the, the thoughts about it and just get into the body. And then you have all this energy. I mean, it's just, you get so jacked up. I mean, you stay up probably till 2 a.m. drinking afterwards. I mean, you don't feel any pain or anything, you know, just from the fear, just the, the adrenaline, you know. And I think everybody's had the experience of speaking in front of a group you get, I mean, at least I still get a lot of uh, butterflies, a little bit of an adrenaline, the heart starts beating a little faster. And I just don't worry about it, but it does give me that clarity to really, it's like time slows down and I can really watch myself what I'm saying. And it, I think it helps actually with delivery because you're really present. You know, it's like focuses. I forgot to mention that, but actually in that, in that example with me, it did seem, seem to slow down. It wasn't really like slow motion, but everything was slowed down enough that you you just were like it seemed like a different a different kind of awareness. Yeah, one more we would move on after. Well, it always seems to me that when I have something experience like that, there's also a sense of detachment that comes. That, um, I remember when I uh, was in college, I was driving back to school, and it was raining and I had the windows rolled up and I was sleepy and I slammed on the brakes and I had a Corvair and then the motor was in the back and it swung the thing around and I remember, and it did seem like that, the time slowed down and the, the car was gradually going into the side of a Myrtlewood tree and uh, I had worked for the Chamber of Commerce and I remember thinking, well that's not it. <laughs> Myrtlewood tree, you know, it's a dad or the river, but you know, and just really feeling that Spaciousness, it was just very peculiar. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you detach from your normal thought processes. I mean, the self, which is the, it really it doesn't exist anyway. I mean, it's just the thoughts and everything we think think we are, they're, they're gone at that moment. So, yeah, it is a detachment from the normal, normal way we view the world. So these moments we do have, they're the same as the moments that we, of selflessness that we glimpse. 
and we have moments of clear recognition of this pure spaciousness. And then the thoughts, like we talked about, start to come in and eventually start following and believing these thoughts. But if we can continue to continue to not attach to the thoughts as they happen after these experiences, we can use that energy of the fear or clarity to look at what is happening in the moment. And the more you can do that, we are well on your way to true insight into what is happening. Because thoughts are always comments on the past. And so if we can ride the clarity, and we can start to see what is happening in the moment, and start to discover what the true nature of thoughts are. So we've become very attached to familiar habitual patterns in our lives, and we continue to cling to these, even when things are going quite badly. A hypothetical example here is like, we're going to, we need to go to run some quick errands before an important meeting we're going to attend. And we want to cook some important dinner for somebody we like, so we have a list of things we need to go to the grocery store. So we get to the grocery store, and the first thing that happens is we grab a cart, head down the aisle. It turns out to be one of those carts that has one of those wobbly wheels. <laughs> Always trying to go in the opposite direction that you want it to go. And then they don't have all these ingredients that you need for this your recipe, so you're searching all over the store to find some substitute, and it's taking a lot of time. Finally, you get everything you need for that, and one last thing you need is some coffee. You have your favorite brand of Costa Rican coffee. And you get there, and the person right in front of you has just cleaned out the bin, <laughs> and the grocery clerk says, I won't get any more for a couple of days. So you're just really frustrated now. You just grab whatever coffee that's right in front of you and throw it in your cart. You get up to the checkout counter, all the lines are really busy, so you, there's only one person in front of you, they have a lot of groceries, they have a huge cart full of groceries. They're about three-fourths of the way done with theirs, and you've just gotten all yours loaded up onto the counter, and then all the scanners break down. <laughs> and they start to manually load everything in, and, and this checkout person you have is brand new, they've never done this before. So they have to call in somebody to help out, and you look at your watch, and you're, you know you're going to miss your meeting now, and it's, you're just really frustrated. And you're kind of muttering under your breath. You might even be rude to the checkout person when you get up there, because they, they just seem like they're so incompetent, you just can't just stand it. <laughs> so if, if this scene was in a TV sitcom, it actually would be pretty funny. But if it's happening to us in our lives, it doesn't seem very funny. Seems like we're stuck in a bad dream, actually. But really, the only bad dream is this story of I that we continue to cling to. So even in the face of all this negative stuff, and the more we hold on, the, the more suffering that arises. Now we say we want to end our suffering, but this sense of I is so ingrained that it seems frightening to let go of it. So even if we're a victim, at least that's a familiar role that seems secure. Now, one of my students once told me they had a lot of expectations in their lives, and they had a fear that, that they would become like jello or a glob of mush if they let go of these expectations. But let's kind of go through this same example of this grocery store and kind of remove the story of I and see how it unfolds. Thoughts and plans are going to continue as even as they did before. You have thoughts and plans about what you need to get at the store, and so the thinking mind is really good at writing down lists, so you do that and come up with your list. You head off to the store, and you get there, and, and all these, you can't find these things, but 
the story of I of what I what a victim you are is just adding more suffering to the situation. You just go and find what you need to find, find some substitutes. You get to the coffee thing. Instead of feeling frustrated at that point, you know, frust frustration again is going to arise, but let go of that. You think, well, there's this other kind of coffee I really wanted to try. Let's be a good opportunity to try that. So you can get that. Or maybe you think, you know, there's a good tea that I haven't that I wanted to try. So maybe I'll get that. Frustration and victimization doesn't need to be a part of this scenario. You can, the more you let go of that, the more things can arise and be created. And when you get up to the counter, instead of being so focused and concerned about your situation and what a victim you are, you let go of that, you can start to be more aware of, of really what's going on with this uh, checkout person. And maybe they are being incompetent. You know, they're new on the job and they're stressed out because these scanners broke down. So maybe something humorous occurs to you to kind of help them relax and maybe do their job better. In that situation, you can kind of start to see that you and the clerk are in the same situation. You've had all this frustration arise and your day hasn't been going good, same as they are. And they're stressed out in their situation. So compassion just kind of would naturally arise there. You can say something like, yeah, I know how, I know how you're going through. My, my day is kind of going the same way. I mean, that's what true compassion is, to really see that there's no difference between you and the other person. So if we have the patience and courage to continue with spiritual practices, and continue to let go of this story of I, as it arises moment to moment, then we can begin to discover more spaciousness in our lives. And it is within this spaciousness that our next F word lies. Freedom and fun, they kind of go together there. So really the burden of our lives is holding on to this belief that we are a separate self. And so freedom naturally arises as we are able to surrender the self. Here's what Sufi Master Attar says. If you succeed in withdrawing from the attachments of the world, you will enjoy felicity. But if you remain attached, your mind will turn like the grindstone of the mill. Not a moment will you be tranquil. And really in our lives, once we let go of any burden, don't you feel more relieved and happy? You can think back when we were in college or school, we had all these exams in our lives. You know, whenever, whenever they were, were gone, once we finished the exam, and we feel, felt relief and happiness. Or you've had an illness or surgery that you've been dealing with. Once that's gone, it's like a burden has been relieved. It's like, wow. This happiness and, and relief enter your life. Or if you have a child that recovers from an illness, the burden is gone and the relief and happiness enters. Now here's what Dr. Franklin Merrill Wolf said about this happiness. And Dr. Wolf was a, one of uh, Joel's instructors, lived down in Lone Pine, California. He was kind of a stately gentleman, born like in the late 1800s. This is what he had to say about happiness. And he's referring here to the union of wisdom and love. This union is the untellable joy of which all lesser ecstasies are but faint shadows. So deep and lasting joy is the true sign of the genuine and noble religiosity. Austere gloom in the name of religion is a sacrilege and a sign of failure. Only false religion is dreary. The holy is free and joyful. And here is what Rumi has to say about freedom. 
Megan sent this quote out in an email. I really liked it. Rumi says, Into this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. So it's really a lovely image of freedom, like someone suddenly born into color. We'll experience the world through this filter of thoughts is like seeing everything in black and white. Things seem nice enough, and there is happiness to be found here and there. But once you're free of the tyranny of thought and the delusion of self, everything is seen as much more vibrant and alive, fresh and new. And as Dr. Wolf said one time, the contents of consciousness don't change. But now it's like everything is seen for the first time. And wouldn't you be full of awe and wonder and joy if you were seeing color for the first time? It would just be amazing. And as you become free of attachment to thought, then they are seen clearly. These thoughts are seen clearly for the first time. As Tibetan mystic Lady Soigo says, thoughts are like rainbow fish swimming through the sea of consciousness. So we've come from the thinking mind viewing spiritual teachings as of selflessness as foolish and absurd. We mixed in a little faith and failure and then began to do spiritual practice and getting glimpses of the space where there is no self, feeling frightened and returning to the familiar <coughs> habit of attachment to thoughts. But if we're willing to keep returning to that space of pure consciousness, the more we'll be, we will be able to abide in the joy and fun that arises as we become free of the delusion of self. So may you all realize this freedom and joy in yourself. So, any questions or comments? Yeah. In your Ramana Maharshi quotes, it talks about sleeping with the snakes. And see, literal snakes crawling over your body in sleep. Is that what he's alluding to? Or is I it? assume so, yeah. Lots of those in India. <laughs> he lived in a cave a lot. Lots of snakes. Yeah, Jane. I just got back from Ireland and we were talking a lot about um, their history of oppression um, and particularly uh, of the famine days. Um, and I just kept thinking back about my great-great-grandmother who came to America during that time on one of the famine ships. And, you know, when you're starving to death, it seems like it would be very difficult to... Um, you know, to, to be the least bit mystical about it, you know. Uh, I don't know, it just goes back to that whole Maslow's hierarchy thing, you know. You can't have enough food or shelter or, you know, sort of like all this other stuff is, like, what's the point of that? Yeah, I mean, that's true. It would be more difficult. If we're distracted by starvation, it's more difficult to realize that there is no self there. I mean, it's still possible. It's always here. It's always available in whatever situation we find ourselves. But it would be more difficult to, to yeah, recognize. Especially if you had children that were starving friends. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the moment, 
you are dying of starvation, you would be very clear and probably very spiritual before you go. Yeah, because that same clarity comes in in the NDE stories and acceptance. Yeah, it can. It doesn't have to. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of times we die the same way we live. So if we're always fearful, if there's a lot of fear in our lives, then we're just going to, in a moment of death, we're still can cling to that fear and, and that clarity. The clarity is there, but we're, we don't see it because we're clinging to the fear. Clearly fearful. Yeah. Clearly fearful, yeah. We've got our own agenda. Right. We're not surrendered. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. A really good example of that is the Eddie Hilson book, where she's you know in Auschwitz, and her awakening and the whole journey. I mean, to be able to see things the way she did, you know, being in a concentration camp and being headed towards her death is, is a pretty amazing story. So that really puts it in the light of what, what is available at any time. Right. And what's, what's the name of that book? It's... An on the other side of that, I have a, reminded me, I have a friend who's a long-time Buddhist practitioner. He sent me an email last month saying that he was talking to this physical therapist about these kinds of issues. And she told him that she had two clients who had had near-death experiences where demons came for them. Mm -hmm. And they're both very mean people. And they were just terrified. I mean, they, you know, they were absolutely horrified. And they came back, and one of them has turned over a new leaf, and the other one has just continued doing this same, you know, same selfish, mean, spiteful kind of behavior. So, <laughs> demons, demons were instructive to one person. Huh? Yeah. I think they're trying to be instructive to both of them. 50-50. So, you recommend for those times when the wheel isn't working and you're getting all irritated and your plans are, you recommend inner Interrupting that by noticing that other people are in the same boat, or well, it's just to notice. <laughs> it's to let go. Of the, it's to let go of the story of whatever is happening. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the wheel. I mean, the car is always going the other direction. I just got one of those the other day. <laughs> it's kind of they're always trying to crash into the aisle or something, yeah. into the stack of it's food. Like, I mean, there's no person there that's happening to. And we always think it's happening, I'm a victim. Why is this happening? Why did I get this car? Just to let go of those stories. The same thing, you know, there's no change in the content of consciousness, like Dr. Wolf says. The car isn't going to suddenly straighten out. It's still going to try to crash in, but it's, once you let go of the stories, then it can become humorous. It's your comedy instead of tragedy. Yeah. It's not self-important. You use it as an opportunity to create balance by Pushing a little more. Isometrics. Well, I um, I think it's for me at least it's um, a practice of uh, turning a perceived negative into a positive. But sometimes, right in the moment, it's hard to do that to turn that emotion into ah, oh, you know, this aha moment. But for me, the sooner I can do that, then the more serene I can be. It's like whenever you notice it, then you can start to let go of it. Or it might be like after it's happened, and then you notice it and think, oh, 
ever I was really attached to that story there. So then the next time it happens, you know, maybe you, you catch it sooner. Just like you said, the sooner you can let go of it, the more freedom and creativity, spontaneity, clarity can be in, in that moment. I must have a lot of work to do. When I get in those frustrating situations, I have F words come to mind too. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, That's it's just, thing to yeah. I mean, things arise. I mean, they can still arise. It's just like, oh, I'm kind of reading Eckhart um, Tolle and listening to some of his CDs, and it's kind of his mantra. And it's almost like I'm getting sick and tired of hearing it because I'm not putting it at rest for a while because it's being with what is. And it, it's to the point where it was probably good for me because I'm trying to do that even as I'm driving or trying to be with what is and be with it and know it's not going to change because of what you said. Just because, you, you know, why did you get that card? It's all of a sudden going to straighten out. And it's right. not easy. It's very difficult. But I've had a few experiences where I've done it with kind of choking and gagging, but um, <laughs> yeah, really, almost physically, trying to be with it, not not get to that story of I thing, but it's just like choking myself down, not to do it. But that's all we can do, really, is to be with what is. But it's so hard to grasp that concept, because we always want to change it. We're habitually conditioned to follow these stories and add layer on the layer, but it can be difficult. It's it's simple, but it's not easy. Right. I mean, it's just let go. Yeah. Let go.